You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, Uncorking a Murder. Uncorking a Murder can be purchased in paperback or ebook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. I'm just, I'm grateful that I, that my serp, my serpentine path has, uh, has had uh, a lot of stops that I never would have dreamt of or not known how to create for myself. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my interview with author and filmmaker Nick Braccia, whose book, Off the Back of a Truck, unofficial contraband for the Sopranos fan, is available for sale right now. Now, one thing I wanted to address up front is that unlike most of the people I've had the privilege of interviewing on the show, I actually know Nick personally. We met while working a summer job close to 30 years ago, and I actually helped him get his first you know, job out of school as a copywriter at the interactive agency I started my career at. Now, interestingly, at least I found this to be interesting, he left Simon & Schuster to take that copywriting job, and I think this is poetic because Tiller Press is an imprint of Simon & Schuster, and that is the publisher of his new book. So uh, it's awesome to see how how that came around full circle. But also, uh, all this is to say, if if you get a sense that there's some familiarity between us as you listen to this interview, it's because there absolutely is familiarity between us. I've known the guy for for 30-plus years. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk about before I share Nick's interview with you, and it's a good one, is that um, you know Nick mentions a few times during our conversation that uh, he's had to kind of pause and reevaluate some of the choices he's made in his career, and oftentimes, oftentimes those choices were poor choices, and he'll be the first one to admit that. But so he's had to reevaluate those choices and then change his behavior accordingly to save his job. And I'm not going to give away all of his stories because you really have to hear him tell them. But it did lead me to reflect on something, which is um, how important it is to have that self-awareness, the self-awareness you need to make a change in your life, as well as have the strength and courage to take the steps to make those changes. And that's not easy for a number of reasons. Now, one of the reasons why it's not easy, it's it's because, you know, we become vulnerable when admitting that we've been wrong about something or that we have some kind of deficiency somewhere. And one thing that I know that many of us are not good at is actually being vulnerable and potentially opening ourselves up to some kind of criticism. Now, sometimes this means, you know, hitting a rock bottom of sorts uh, or it's it's scared, being scared into doing something. But whatever the catalyst for change is, we're all faced with a decision to make, and that's either to stand still and accept the status quo or embrace change. And we all know what the right decision here is, right? I mean, if we believe in in Charlie Darwin, we know that those of us who are more adaptive to change are the ones who will survive. So yes, it does require hard work to both identify the need for change and then to put change into motion. But unfortunately, that's not where the hard work ends. Oftentimes, things can get harder before they get better. You think about it, when you make a big change in your life, it can be seen as threatening to the people who are happy with the status quo. So change can be threatening to some people who are fine or just comfortable with the way things are. And this often comes into play in relationship dynamics. So imagine that, you know, one half of a couple wants to make a change in their life, you know, whether that's becoming healthier uh, and and whether that health is mental or physical, mental, (laughs) I think I'm mentally unhealthy. No, whether that change is, you know, either mental or physical, um, 
Or maybe it's, you know, one person wanting to learn how to be a better communicator, or that person wants to learn how to stand up for themselves more often. You know, I know it sounds crazy because who wouldn't want their partner to improve in these areas, right? But the fact is when one half of a couple takes steps to change their life in a big way, it can be seen as a threat to the relationship's dynamic. And, you know, people might start asking questions, you know, will, will she still love me after she loses all that weight? Or will he still want me after he addresses his own insecurities? Will I be okay with the new him or her? These are all questions that people might be asking themselves, either consciously or subconsciously. And because of that, this person who's begun to make changes in their life can find themselves caught in a bit of a pickle play, you know, trying to balance the desire to change with the tension that can erupt in their own personal life. So if that's your dynamic and if that's your reality, what do you do? Well, I have some thoughts. Now, I'm not a licensed therapist, people, but I have some life experience. Um, for one, we need to remember that making you know big changes in your life requires support from other people. That's you know you got to know that. So if you have a partner or a spouse, you know be open and honest with them about the changes you want to make in your life. You know don't catch them off guard by just declaring something like I'm going to change myself and this is how it's going to be. No, you know help make them part of your process and ask for their help. Now, that's something I am personally terrible with, asking for help. I mean, it's, it's one of my known issues. Um, but when you can ask for, someone, for someone's help, and if you invite them to partner with you, um, and if they are partner, partnered with you in that journey, it's less likely that they're going to become an adversary. Now, another thing to be aware of is how the things that you do and you say might be contributing to you know, the other person's insecurities around your change. So relationship dynamics involve inputs and and outputs from two people. And so, you know, if you're aware of how you contribute to that dynamic, and if you can be proactive about addressing those insecurities, that's going to help you along in this process with the other person. But here's the rub. And and this is, you know, it could be a big problem. You know, it might be that the change you want to make alters your relationship dynamic so much that unless the other person is also open to changing, then the relationship could be in jeopardy. So take, for example, somebody who is always very easygoing in their life, you know, maybe to the point where, where they're a people pleaser and they've never stood up for themselves. You know, the person who always gave in and was frequently taken advantage of by another person in a relationship. Now, let's imagine... This has been going on for decades in a relationship. And when that person eventually finds the strength to change what it is about them that leads them to be constantly being walked over, um, when they start to, to, to have that strength and find that strength to, to finally start pushing back, it could very well lead to the end of a relationship unless the person who is doing the taking advantage of accepts the new dynamic. And if they can't, then things will eventually become untenable. Then it's time for you and your partner to have a sit down with someone like Dr. Melfi, who of course was Tony Soprano's therapist. Now, that of course brings me back full circle to Nick Braccia and his book, Off the Back of a Truck, Unofficial Contraband for the Sopranos Fan. In this interview, Nick and I talk about his background, but also the important people who have had key influences on his career, namely a third grade teacher, an ex-uncle, and a professor at the College of the Holy Cross. We talk about the importance of real support, encouragement, and acknowledgement, as well as the importance of putting in the work, being in the right place at the right time, and of course, sheer luck. And now, without any more pop psychology rants from yours truly, here's my conversation with author and filmmaker Nick Braccia. You know, Bracha, the last time I saw you, we were in a tiki bar in L.A. Yeah. Do you have any recollection of that evening? I I do. It's funny. That was at the Tonga Hut, um, which I love. And I, I was actually I was carried out of that bar that evening. <laughs> and then I remember I remember in the in the car I was in being like, wait a minute, my cell phone's in there <laughs> and having to go having to go in and collect the phone but that is one of my uh that's one of my favorite tiki bars because the, the drinks are great 
And although I like fancier tiki bars where they invest more in the design, um, that it's not, it's not snobby and, and too precious. Like some of the ones in LA and San Francisco can be, although I love, I pretty much love all tiki bars where they can mix a great drink and we've got none. There isn't one in New York. What, what's, um, the, what's the fascination with, with you and tiki bars? I always wanted to know that. Oh, um, that's a good question. It, it really came a lot from the culture of uh, a place where I worked for seven years, Campfire, uh, where my creative partner there and my, and my boss for a long time, uh, Mike Manella, who's one of the, uh, he's a Florida guy. He was one of the producers of the Blair Witch Project back in the 90s. And he's, he's been up in, in New York for about 15 years. He, uh, you know, as a collective, Campfire was really interested in, in subcultures, how they form uh, in an experience design. And tiki bars are really where that all comes together. I mean, they, they, it started as a trend after, after World War II. A lot of the guys that came back from the Pacific Theater um, had an affinity for that aesthetic. And it became a place where, like, shell, you know, or a vibe where, like, essentially shell-shocked guys or guys who had done their time over there um, could go. And just and it, from a contemporary standpoint, um, I, they're so transportive. And there's two in particular that, were amazing experiences for me. One was when I was visiting my in-laws uh, at the time they were living in Houston. Now they live closer to Austin, but there's a very, very good tiki bar called Lalo in, in, in Houston. And you pull into this little strip mall parking lot. There's like a Seven Eleven and a laundromat. And then you see this other storefront and it's just very, everything's very nondescript. And you're like, where am I? And all the windows are blacked out. Um, there's a canoe outside, which gives it away a little bit, but you open the door and you really feel like you're entering another world. The cl- it feels like the climate changes, the vibe changes, and people put so much care into it. This particular place, you know, they made their own orgia syrup and, and it was really good. And, I've, and the, sim- the similar places, I got a buddy, a, another uh, colleague from when I worked at Campfire, Steve Colson. He lives in Nutley, New Jersey, and he actually completely redid his garage and turned it into a bi-level uh, tiki bar. It's gorgeously designed. It can hold up against, you know, it looks, it looks as good as any tiki bar in the country. Uh, and, you know, now and again, it's been different since COVID. I'll take an Uber 35 minutes out to Nutley, walk, walk past his house. He's got a wonderful family and four kids. Go right into that garage, and I'm in a different world. So it's, like, it's, it's for the, it's for the transportive experience design properties and the drinks are really good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's important. So <laughs> it I is, have, you're like, I waited all that time to talk about alcohol, but the drinks all have great story. have great, have their own origin stories from like Don, the beachcomber and, and Trader Vic. And it's a, uh, it just, it's just kind of fun. Well, I know that we, uh, we do want to talk about, uh, the new book, um, which I promise we will get to, but before we we get into that, I always like to do a little biographical uh, portrait of of the authors we have on the show. So, uh, just starting off with, um, you know, Nick, wh- where did you grow up, and just kind of paint a picture of what your childhood was like back in uh, back in those days. Oh boy! So, <clears throat> uh, I was born in Stanford, but quickly uh, moved to Norwalk. My dad is a Stanford, Connecticut family, and my mom was a Norwalk, Connecticut family. And both civil servants. My mom was a nurse, uh, my dad a cop. So, you know, we grew up, uh, you know, I'd say middle, middle class, but work, working middle class for, you know, for Fairfield County, of course, is um, it's, a, it's a tricky place to grow up. And just very, I mean, very, very normal, like, you know, fairly overprotective parents. So I just, I just grew up doing sports and things like that. Um, and went to public school through eighth grade and it, and it was right around that time. Um, I think it was, I was always, uh, writing like school was, school was tricky until about third grade. And I had a very, very supportive teacher, um, a Mrs. Vote, who I think, I think lives, still lives in Fairfield. And, uh, it was then that I really, uh, started to develop taste and something of a, a style or a voice, but it was really in like eighth, that eighth, ninth grade period when Twin Peaks came out that I was like, because we weren't a very arty family at all. It was like, you know, Star Wars, like Steven Spielberg movies. We were early to video games. We were early to VHS, but not with any 
like discerning taste. It was just like this stuff's fun and cool. Um, it was also safe. Like my, you know, we didn't, we weren't kids. Uh, my parents v- like really liked having us at home, which meant we had a lot of ways to entertain ourselves there mm-hmm. versus the, the cool kids who, you know, were, were in, you know, riding their, riding their bikes all around town and doing, doing whatever. Uh, so, and then I went to fair, I went to Fairfield prep for high school. Before we, get, before, of, yeah, before we get to high school, tell me more yep. about this Mrs. Vote and, and the impact she had on you. It sounds like oh, sure. something happened. She there. was really great. I just, I had ne- the, my early teachers, my teachers in kindergarten, first grade and second grade, um, none of them seemed real happy to be there. And none of them took, a, I didn't feel like any of them took a particular interest in me. And there were certainly areas where I was behind uh, like penmanship and things like that. And it was with it was with uh, Mrs. Vote that I first felt uh, any any like real support and encouragement or acknowledgement. And I'll never forget this. One of the first things I ever won in my life. I might have won a jump roping contest earlier than that. It turns <laughs> out I'm, a, I'm an exceptional jump uh, jump roper, but that's a that's a whole nother podcast. Mr. Double Dutch um, over I, here. I got a what's that? It's a Mr. Double Dutch over here. Oh, I, well, I didn't do double Dutch. I you know I didn't. Uh, but the um. I can still speed rope a little bit. So Mrs. Vote, like she had a, a keys and you got, you got stars when you got hundreds on spelling tests. And I got through the whole year getting a hundred percent on every spelling test. And she made a big deal out of, out of that. And like made, you know, people wanted to see if I was going to keep, if I was going to do it, was I going to pull it off? Was I going to get the whole year? And there was a class, a class play where she gave me, you know, she gave me a part in, but she's, she saw something. I don't know if I want to say that she favored me, but she, I certainly felt encouraged, acknowledged. And like I was, that was the beginning of, of uh, developing uh, some sense of confidence and, and pride academically. And she was, it could be that all the kids in the class look back at her and feel that same thing. Like, I don't know that I got preferential or special treatment. I just know that to some degree I entered, I entered the next grade, uh, you know, feeling like, you know, feeling like I was somebody. Gotcha. So she, she kind of sparked something in you that, that no one else had done to that point. And I can't believe I buried the lead. The other thing that she did was that she read, she read to the class and she read Judy Bloom's freckle juice. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I mean, it's a great story. It's a great story to read a bunch of eight year olds. And, um, you know, it's one I read to my, my daughter. Now I probably started reading her freckle juice when she was like five. Cause she likes it. So likes the story so much, but uh, that was a gateway. She was very smart to, you know, Judy Bloom was all the rage back in, you know, 1980, this would have been 85. Yeah, she was. Uh, and this, and it was, uh, you know, her reading freckle juice was a gateway to me, to me as uh, someone who reads, you know, reads for pleasure. Um. So- so, so I just I'm curious, like back in those days when you were growing up in in sort of suburban Connecticut in the 80s, did, did you have like like what did you want to be? I mean, both your parents were were silver uh, silver surfers, silver surfers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were heralds for Galactus, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but did you? I mean, you know, were were you thinking, you know, cop, fireman, you know, doctor? Where, where was your head at back in, in those days? My head was second base for the Yankees, but it it turns, um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know. There was, I I think, I mean, at that time I still think you think, yeah, I can play for the, I can play major league baseball and you don't realize how hard that is. Um, at that age, I don't think I was thinking too much about it. I can't remember what I would, what I would write down if people would, or what I would say when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I did have an uncle who's an, he's an ex uncle now, but we're, we're still friendly on Facebook, uh, who I probably met about that time. I can't remember what year he married my aunt. Um, he was a guy from Greenwich who taught, uh, who taught music, um, at a high school in Harrison, New York, but they lit and they eventually lived in Norwalk, but he was a big, he was a, he was a Kung Fu guy and he was a movie guy and he scored, uh, you know, he scored a short that got nominated for an Oscar, and he, you know, he went and took meetings in Hollywood and, and, um, he was, he, he was, uh, very much, 
like I thought he was the coolest thing in the world because I was like, oh, he has a creative career and he's an adult who knows. I mean, I say an, an adult. He was probably 28 at the time. Um, he he I guess 28 is an adult. But now at us in our in our mid 40s, 28 seems like eh, get some years on you, kid. <laughs> um, but he. Like he was like, oh, it was like, woo, he's got this, you know, I kind of worshiped him at the time um, be- because he was like this creative guy who made his living that way and had this huge uh, studio in his basement. And I was like, oh, a creative career. But it was always pulling at me like this, like it was always positioned as something very dangerous. As I said, my parents are super responsible. My mom, you know, I hesitate to use the term overprotective, but I will. But I remember I took the my I took the Myers Briggs test. They you know our, our guidance counselor sometime in high school like rolled out the Myers Briggs test and it it was like he's an extroverted create whatever it was it like equated when she heard she she heard that's not going to make any money or have health insurance <laughs> and she and she was like that and I remember she said this and I never really even talked to her about it but she said that's not really you that sounds like a wannabe interesting and it friggin crushed me yeah and. It, um, I've always really walked these two paths subsequently professionally between my creative endeavors and all I've always had, except for the last two weeks, actually are catching me at an interesting time. I've had a, I've had a full-time job more or less, uh, you know, with health insurance for the last 22 years. And I, I never, I haven't, any dice rolling I've done has been with the house's money, so to speak, or, uh, you know, on my own kind of on, you know, on my own hours moonlighting, I haven't really taken uh, the big risks. And I, and I think, and there's, there's reasons why that's good and reasons why that's bad, but it's uh, I think that all came from, you know, early on, I was intrigued by the, by these, this notion of, of being a creative professional or creative endeavors. And I wouldn't say I was whole, I was wholly discouraged from that, but security was certainly, uh, placed at the forefront of what I should be, uh, what my parents wanted to invest in and what they, f- what they felt like I should be pursuing. Cause they, cause they were worried. Yeah. Well, you know, it's tough though, when you have, you know, people in your life who you kind of like love and respect, um, and who mean very well, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, but when they, when they say things like that, I'm very conscious of this with my own kids, but you know, when they say things that, that they don't mean to be discouraging, but but it's hard to take it as anything but, hey, you know, do the safe thing. Don't follow that dream. Like, yes. I, I, sometimes I wish, you know, somebody came to me in sort of my early, early 20s, like before I graduated college and said, hey, you know what? Now's the time in your life where you can really explore and, you know, have a little bit of an adventure, you know, take a year off and then and then come back and figure out what you want to do. Because I, I, I look back on my own you know, my own journey um, in my career. And I'm like, man, I've, I've just, I've never been satisfied in anything I've done. Um, and I, I really wish I had, you know, that, that sort of nudge to say, you know what, you're going to be working for the rest of your life, you know, do something now that's going to um, really help you figure out what you want to do. Because, you know, for, I wanted to be a psychologist, you know, from the time I was 18. And then I decided, you know, not to pursue that. I got a job in advertising and the rest was kind of history. But um, anyway, sorry, this interview was more about you than about me, but I, I, no, I do, no, I, no. I do recognize I mean, you got, you got me my that. first job in advertising that I almost got <laughs> fired from like eight times. I that still was, don't know how I didn't get fired. Some, somebody must've had a crush on me or something. Cause there, I, I, I really should have gotten fired. I did not have, I, I would have fired me. <laughs> Well, let's, let's let's dial it back a second. So you you do the Fairfield prep thing. You go to Holy Cross. Um, yes, I do. A year, a year in England abroad, which is the best year of my life, I'd say. Right. What was so great about that year? Oh God, it was so much fun, and it shows up and it shows up in the book that we'll that we'll talk about. One, a guy that I met there is one of the uh, main contributors, aside from me, um, of the book. It was there were so many things that were great about it. Um, well, when you, sh- I was never, a, I, well, I was never a popular kid. I was, I was like always in the mix and stuff. But when I came over like an East coast kid in the UK, uh, there was, I think there was a bit of a novelty. 
um, to me, kind of like fat, like fast talking. Jo- I was like a fast talking, joking, jokey American, I think delivering what they had seen on television. And uh, so I was kind of cool, which was new. <laughs> and I played, I played ultimate Frisbee and the guys on that and the women on that team were just really fun. And, uh, and I also had my, you know, had my first like serious girlfriend over there. It was an English girl who's now married to a French chef. Cause of course she is. And, um, <laughs> lives in a beautiful countryside of England. I'm not bitter. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the te- the teachers were great. And I just, I learned, I mean, I learned so much and I just really liked, I really liked the, that their sensibility and, and that culture. Um, and, and there were just fascinating things that I hadn't seen. I was coming from Holy Cross, you know, where you couldn't get condoms on campus to, <laughs> at all, like into where they literally have them in the lot in the the bathrooms and vending machines, the library of, of the university I was at. I was Just like, all right, the, this place seems okay. In case the mood strikes when you're in the bathroom, yeah, yeah, at the library. exactly. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, and it was a great time to be there in terms of pop music. It was right in the middle of you know, Blaze, uh, Blur, and Oasis. I had I had done radio shows and done, I had done a lot of radio at my college, but the bar was higher in the UK with auditioning and the relationship that the students had to the BBC. Uh, so getting on, you know, doing like advancing uh, at the time it was I don't want to say my radio my radio career, but uh, my my interest in program in programming and presenting I would say DJing, but DJing now you know means something kind of else now. But hosting radio shows I really enjoyed, and just living with different people from different countries like it was it was amazing. Justin in, in my flat was a you know there, there was a British girl uh, a Lebit a, a the woman next to me. She was very young at the time. I think she was like 17 when she started university was uh, she was Lebanese, but born and raised in Greece. There was an Italian woman. There was a guy from Malaysia. It was just like, it, it just, I, it was, I was surrounded by great people and plenty of people from my college from Holy Cross that I liked and other people from like Northwestern, a guy who I still talk to almost every day, uh, Eddie McNamara, who's in the Sopranos book was, a, he was from Brooklyn. I think the Marine park area, and had gone to Stony Brook and we met over there and it was like, I had this buddy who I could make jokes about Curtis Sliwa with and talk about, do like, I would see him across campus. He would see me and we'd break into Ric Flair struts <laughs> and we would, we would just strut and like all the, everyone else is looking at us like, who are these, who are these mooks? Who are these weirdos? But we like, it was just, it was just great. And I didn't, sc- the school part was like, I, you know, I mean, I, I liked the classes I took and the professors, but I just, uh, I was just a kid in a candy store all year. And it was the year that Tony Blair won the election. So from a political standpoint, um, it was, you know, the country was shifting. I was at a super liberal university in a, in a beach town. It was just great. So when you, when you finally leave Holy Cross, what, what's your first step? Where, where, where do you start your career? Uh, lifeguarding at the Italian, still lifeguarding at the Italian <laughs> Center in Stanford, and there was, you know, I, I took a few video production jobs, um, working as a production assistant at a place called National Video Center. Um, I mean, ver- my very first gigs, and I started talking to these people when I was still in college. Uh, there was a woman named Laura Hill and her husband Arthur Timpanero, who lived in Norwalk next to my now deceased uncle who had a, who ran their own production company. She worked full time. She had been at Ryan partnership, but she also was take doing her own projects and they brought me on to PA a bit like, and it was like, okay, here's the list of all the props that we need. You know, we need them tomorrow. You need to get a foam brain and a jar to keep it in. And, and this other huge list of things, go figure it out. And I'm, that was like my introduction to the business. Um, but my, the first time, my first job offer actually came from Simon and Schuster, who's now my publisher, where I interviewed, um, at first (laughs) a friend of mine from Holy Cross put my resume in and I interviewed to be the editorial assistant on their Star Trek imprint. And I thought I was killing it in the interview. The woman is, is like, you know, how do you feel about Star Trek? I'm like, I know it. I know the difference between a Klingon and a Romulan and yada, yada. I'm not a huge Star Trek guy at all, but I had ba- have base pop culture knowledge. And then I think I'm killing the interview. And she like pulls this box out from under her desk and it's filled with these little furry things. And she's like, can you tell me what these are? Oh, and shit. I'm like, no. <laughs> and she's like, those are tribbles. She's like, you don't know what tribbles are? I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm unfamiliar with your tribbles. 
and I did not get that job because they did not identify Tribbles properly. That's the trouble with Tribbles right there. But they were like, oh, we still like this kid. So they threw me over to international sales and I became an international sales assistant. I'm still uh, quite friendly with all the people I had at that first job. And that was just, that was filling boxes, doing returns. I think I started at at $21,500 a year. So you're taking the train in and that's half your, that's half your money. (laughs) And the other, the other half goes to lunch. Um, So that was uh yeah that i stayed there for about 9 months while and then of course i ended up at moda media which was my first creative director job i'm sorry cr- creative job as a copywriter um and i tell this to kids today coming out of college of how different it was getting that they were tr- it was before the dot com bubble burst and they needed talent so badly that i more or less wrote three fake like banners for eBay, like on like a napkin pretty much. And just like brought them to, you know, brought them to this guy. Um, and, and all of a sudden I got a job like in like a 50% pay increase from what I was making. And I'm like, they just wanted, they just needed, they needed warm bodies who had a familiarity with the internet yeah, as quick, you know, and some, some semblance of critical thinking skills, uh, as quickly as possible, but it was just, it was very, very different. We, you know, we stepped into the working world at a, you know, frankly, a, a much easier time. Well, I mean, it, 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 but it took you from like selling, you know, selling books, if you will, internationally to like creating, being a creator. Um, what, yeah, what I never was really your... selling the books. I was like the, you know, I was the helper for the department. They okay. would bring in a burlap sack of sliced off covers from India and I would have to like count them. <laughs> like it was, I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, hey, Singapore, how many copies of the new Stephen King bestseller would you like? Yeah. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I, those, I was assisting the guys that, that traveled all over the world and sold the books. But the thank as- you. The assistant to the traveling secretary. I was I was assistant I was assistant to the to the international cowboys they called them. But you but but you I guess the the point is you got into a place where you were actually doing some creation, right? So this this uncle, yes. this mysterious twenty eight year old uncle you had, uh, who was into kung fu and music and and scoring um, scoring pictures, uh, who inspired you at one point. Um, now you're now you're doing it now. Like what what was that? What was that? Sent? What did that do for your soul? Like when when you started like creating things. I well, when I first showed it took it took a while. Like what I'll say is that at that I was terrible at that first job because I didn't um, I didn't understand the rules and you know we and I didn't and part of it was everyone was young. The bosses were young. You're moving quickly. And I had, you know, I was very, I was definitely young and immature and I was trying to, you know, move out of my parents' house and, and figure out who I am. But I still remember the, the first brief I got was for Citibank for their, for City Wallet, this application oh, that was yeah. meant to, and we had to do banner campaigns for, for City Wallet. And I just thought I could be like wild and creative. I didn't understand the parameters. And I remember pitching sitting in, in my, one of my boss's offices and being like, well, what I, I think they should do is we should do a whole campaign around cows and how cows really want to want you to use city wallet because there'll be less leather used and they don't, they don't want to be killed for their leather. So they should be really psyched about this digital wallet. <laughs> and I remember they just looked at me and they were like, no, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Dave, Dave you know, Shabbat I, wasn't down with that idea. No, they, they were not. They were not down with that idea. And it was, I start after nine months, I started to get it. And I did, I was, I always do well with, with call them what you want, mentors, rabbis. And there was a guy there. <clears throat> I found one there and his, his name was Joel Trenton. And he, you know, the other guys, I think were, they were a little nervous. They were, were you know, they were young and kind of like worried themselves. Joel had been around the block and I think he saw that I had some raw talent and that I needed I needed a little guidance <clears throat> that I don't think anyone else had the pa- necessarily the patience at the time to provide. And I don't, I don't blame those guys. I was very, very difficult, but <clears throat> I did, I did start to find something of a path uh, and a voice uh, with, with Joel's, you know, with, with Joel's support. 
Um, and I, yeah, I say there, you know, I say there nine months working on mo- mostly on Citibank, but a few other things came in. And then I got the job at Gray Interactive, which got me into the city, which got me a little more money. And it took a couple of years there. But by the time I was, you know, there was a time when I was 26, maybe 25. I'd been dating a girl in LA, flying out there all the time, which I couldn't afford and was thinking of being uh, becoming a teacher. I even took the test to become a, a public school teacher in the state of California and I um, was definitely about to get fired from Gray Interactive because my attitude sucked. And then she and I broke up and I had all this debt. And I and that and that was where the rubber met the road for me was when it was probably in like 2000, late 2002, early 2003, where I was like, oh, wait, I need this job. I've got a lot of debt and I have to get another job. So I, at that point, I started a really strong relationship with my ECD. I felt kind of grateful to have this job, to be working on M&Ms. And I started coming up and selling, you know, big ideas. But it's wild at the time that my career really got to, came together um, and I matured was also when I was moonlighting Wednesday nights, uh, Wednesday nights, Saturday night, Friday nights and Saturday nights at this insane dive bar in Hell's Kitchen. So I basically, you know, had these two lives and kept my, you know, kept my eyes open, my nose clean and, and started to develop a good, a good, a good, a good, uh, I'm sorry, reputation in the company and in the industry. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's great that you eventually had that self-awareness that, Hey, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta make a little shift here. And people looking out for me, like I had a lot of, a lot of other people got laid off and fired probably when I should have, there was a time when I was dating this very hardworking copywriter and we had just bro- we had just broken up, and we we got uh, put on the same pitch, and it was going to be based on the perform. We had an acrimonious breakup, and it was going to be based on the performance of the on the pitch who kept their job. Oh shit! And, and we yeah, and we kind of knew that going in, and uh, so I've I've been in, she's been I think a public school teacher for twenty something years, and I've and I've had this career in advertising. I don't know who the winner was in that situation. Yeah, well, but yeah that's like Thunderdome shit. It was thund- no, it was total Thunderdome once the when the bubble burst. But I, I somehow survived by some combination of guile, charm, talent, and be and, and luck. Just like, you know, uh, so I've been. I was very, very grateful for that, and I'm still in touch with all my, uh, and very thankful for all my bosses from that period. My my CDs and ECDs. I still talk to them fairly regularly. Yeah. Well, let's let's bridge the gap between kind of the the Sopranos book coming out. And kind of, you know, where, where you were after the bubble burst, like what led you to, um, and, and I love the story cause it is full circle because your, your, your publisher is your, you know, first employer. Um, but just, just kind of bridge that time period for me in terms of like how you got to all of a sudden, you know, writing a book on, on the Sopranos. It's, you know, it's, I've been having this discussion with a really uh, dear friend of mine, um, Andrew Green, who's uh, he's a partner at this this firm, Andreessen Horowitz, but he he it, it, he was my client when I was working on electronic arts. We became very close, and what I've realized is that through life, like we compare our styles. Like he creates opportunity by foraging and being you know to use a boxing metaphor, like a pressure fighter, and he always has very clear direction on where he's going. Um, my approach has always been different for better or worse. I'm more of a counter puncher. Like I'm kind of just like standing there and things come at me and I see opportunities and I kind of just like grab them. And it, and it stuff just like is if you stay busy, but not necessarily like with any pressure in a particular in a particular direction, like stuff just seems to find me. And like, I, and I, and I, you know, get used to saying yes. So I mean, part of that, I've always had, I've always been a moonlighter, like to use a term I first heard when, uh, that when Travis Bickle was applying for his taxi license and taxi driver and they were like, what do you want to do this for? He's like, you moonlighting. He's like, what's moonlighting? But that's a whole another story. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I was very early in, like I had my job, but I was also like an alternate reality game designer. I would always have like my side hustles. That's a sort of na- a nasty term these days when none of us can really just have one job, but it's, uh, <laughs> I've always had these side hustles and 
whether it's in, in game development or game design or other creative products or writing screenplays or what have you. Um, but I'd never really, aside from one class I took when my daughter was born in horror fiction, I hadn't really pursued uh, long form writing. And uh, the way this came together was, is, I mean, very accidental and I'm very, and I'm very grateful. A lot of things in my life seem very accidental, but I I was, I've had a campfire. HBO was a longtime client of ours. So I spent a lot of time in meetings up at their office and maybe three years ago or so, or two, when was it? No, not three, two, maybe two, two and a half years ago. I was, uh, I was up at HBO for meetings about Watchmen, like a year, year and a half before Watchmen came out. Uh, I was probably watching an early pilot. I was, taking some notes and I got out of their office. And what's important here is that at the time they're now over in Hudson yards, but HBO was right at the corner of Bryant park Mm -hmm. near the great, near the, in the grace building uh, or at least adjacent to the grace building. And just up the block from that is my, is the Simon and Schuster building. It's like, you know, a, I don't know, a four minute walk from HBO's front door. So I get out of this meeting at HBO late in the afternoon and I'm like, I don't want to go back down to Tribeca. It's like three o'clock or something. So I call uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sam Ford, who's the director of cultural intelligence for Tiller Press, which is an imprint there. And Sam, I've known for a long time through the, you know, where I started in the alternate reality game community. He was, uh, came through media program at MIT. He studied under and wrote a book with Henry Jenkins, who's been an important person in, uh, in my field for the last, you know, 15 or 16 years and is also a contributor to the Sopranos book. But I said, I called Sam and he picked up the phone, which I didn't, I was surprised that he was even around. I was like, Hey man, can I just go camp out in your office and use your Wi-Fi to finish my work day? And he said, yeah. And I had been there before and and had met his boss. We had gone, uh, uh, Teresa DeMasi, um, as part of campfire, we had gone up there to, to meet them and talk about story worlds and, and things like that, just as a, as a general like meet and greet a few months earlier. So I was like, oh, I'll pop, I'll pop in and I'll get my work done for the rest of the day. So we start working, but I end up in this conversation uh, with Sam and Teresa about, uh, about lots of things. We always have very like far-reaching uh, conversations, touch on all sorts of stuff. But we start talking about uh, peak TV. And I just start riffing like book opportunities for them, for them to pursue because Tiller Press has a, it has a different model based on underserved, uh, underserved markets, niche subcultures where there's opportunities and being able to kind of react to culture quickly. And um, so we start talking about peak TV books and, and the conversation turns to the Sopranos. And when I start talking about the Sopranos, I see uh, Teresa especially light up. turns out, you know, she was a big fan of the show. And as I'm talking about its place in, in TV history and about what the show meant to me, um, not necessarily as an Italian American, but that's part of it, I think. Um, you know, I, we get, you know, she, I see her get kind of very excited and we continue this conversation for a while. And she's like, that should be a book. And I think as an aside, she's like, you should write it. And I'm just kind of like shrug it off. Like, I'm like, Oh, when, you know, when will I do that? And so I, you know, it was very, very nice to hang out with them and I leave and I don't know, eight weeks later, nine weeks later, I get an email from Sam. It's like, do you want to come back up and discuss that Sopranos book? I'm like, what Sopranos book? (laughs) So I came, I went back up and I was like, it's one of those things where like opportunity knocks, I answer like, of course, I'm going to come back up and hear what they have to say. I didn't think about what it was going to take. I didn't think about how I was going to do it. Um, I just went up and I sat in a room for an hour brainstorming what the, what the book could be. And then I wrote a one, I wrote a one pager description and the next, like pretty much the next day I, they were like, we're going to do this. And here's when it's due and we're going to time it with a bit, a big part of um, the potential for the book was that I meant that I mentioned to them. I don't know. I can't remember if they knew this or not, that the movie, that there was a Sopranos movie that was greenlit and it was coming out. That was going to be a prequel. So the opportunity to time the book with the movie was very attractive to them. Like if I had said, I want to do this about Twin Peaks, which I also love, I would have missed it. You know, it wouldn't have been as relevant because Twin Peaks season three had already hit. So <clears throat> So I wrote up a proposal for what the book could be. 
And the actual book ended up being a little different from the proposal, but all of a sudden it was like, yeah, you've got this and, and you've got this many months to do it. And, uh, you know, good luck kid. And he, you can have a little budget for contributors. So um, if, cause I, cause I knew right away, I wouldn't be able to pull, have a full-time job and pull off writing a, the whole thing myself. Yeah. So I just, I just need to pause for a second because it's, um, <laughs> I'm sure some people who are listening to this are screaming because this isn't typically how this stuff happens. You know, usually it's, you know, somebody off somewhere who has got an idea. They, they put together the proposal. Um, you know, if, if it's nonfiction, it's the proposal. If it's fiction, they write the damn thing and then they try to find an agent to represent it. And then they get rejected 7,000 times. Um, and yours, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a, a unique story in, in that regard where it kind of, it was an idea born out of a brainstorm you didn't necessarily follow up on it until they called you and said, Hey, um, you want to come up and, and talk about that book. And then you write a proposal and then all of a sudden, boom, you have the deal. Um, yeah. One thing I want to clarify though, is yeah. that, I mean, Tiller, Tiller is very unique. I mean, they're in Simon and Schuster, but they're very nimble and fast moving and their, their model is different um, in that the, the advance, the advances comparatively are, are, gen- you know, are generally on the, I think on the lower end, but there's, you know, a, but you've got the marketing support and there's more, there's potentially more chance for upside, but I still have no manager, no agents, like, you know, so it was, uh, it's, yeah, there's certainly a, a contract and a deal, but it's not like um, everything happened and it's like, this is changing it, you know, it wasn't, it's not, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the kind of deal that it would allow me to do this anywhere near full time. Right. Gotcha. So it's not like you're, you're. You're quitting the day job to. Uh, it was. I'd say it was. It was winning the lottery of opportunity versus uh, winning the financial. You know, winning the financial lottery. <laughs> um, so, just out of curiosity, where, where does your? I mean, you mentioned kind of being an Italian American and, and having an appreciation of The Sopranos. Like, how important was that show? Uh, you know, in in general, um, because I mean, I certainly was a big fan. I mean, it was definitely appointment viewing. You know, back in. God, back in the day, before I had a DVR, you know, like I you had to watch yeah. it. It was Sunday nights, right? You, you had to watch it on Sunday nights or, you know, there wasn't no video on demand back then either. Um, so t- to me, that was like the first show I remember really being like appointment viewing for me. But yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I didn't watch it right at the beginning. I was in a tough, a tough period and right in 99. So I think I started watching in season two. And I've watched the series six, you know, six times since then. And certainly it was a huge, by the time seasons two and three, like, especially season three came around, I was, you know, it was hardcore appointment viewing, but it's a show that's really resonated with me over the last two decades um, in that, I mean, it's a, tri- it's a, it's a satire, the show's a satire, The Sopranos is a comedy, it's an awfully a dark comedy, but it's this, you know, I mean, you, we grew up in the same place, Mike, so you, you would get this for sure but it's it uses uh these mobsters as as a proxy for the disease of conspicuous consumption you know consumer culture um all the places that america has has really been heading as it's become more homogenized um and also you know, really the, the death of the first, well, I say first, I mean, really that the, the death of the immigrant cultures that came over, uh, you know, end of 19th, early 20th century, the, you know, the Irish, the Italian, the German, the Europe, the European immigrants, uh, all who had, uh, you know, it was like when my dad was growing up in Stanford, his whole family lived on one block. Everybody they talked to was Italian. Um, all of that stuff, um, that cultural identity has kind of fallen away, fallen by the wayside and, and been replaced. Um, so I think that David Chase is kind of like acknowledges that stuff, finds some value in it, but also kind of laughs at it. So all, all in all, I, I just think it was like the great, the, I think it was the great American comedy of our age. But I also felt like I, as a tri-state area, Italian-American, not Jersey necessarily, that was, you know, 90 minutes away, uh, was just it just really all landed uh it it landed for me um and it's and it stayed with me 
over the years. And I would revisit, I revisited it when right after my daughter was born and there's a lot of home time. I watched it again. And then of course I watched it again, uh, multiple times in the, in the context of putting the book together. You know, just, I'm just, I want to go back to something you just said in terms of like, um, kind of how, how our society has changed, um, in terms of when your father was younger, you know, his whole family lived on the same block. What, what specifically changed and why did it change? Oh, I think what, what changed is that I, I think there's, there's lots of reasons. One, uh, inter, you know, intercultural marriage was happening. So families got dispersed, um, opportunity, education and opportunity, right? It's this, it's this, this great irony, uh, for all of the, you know, first, second, third generation, like immigrant parents who, who work really, really hard, um, to push their kids beyond working into this middle class that, uh, that allegedly uh, articulates that you've, you've kind of arrived now, whether or not that's a whole, that's a whole big lie or not is something, you know, that could be another, that could be another podcast, but by virtue of supporting your children and giving them stuff, they go and find new worlds and new opportunities and they spread their wings to use a, a cliche. And that, that takes them off the block. And often that's something they're never forgiven for. <laughs> um, but it's, it, it's kind of what happens. I just think um, it's simula- It's just straight up cultural assimilation. Yeah. It, it, it happens, um, you know, it, it, it it's, not entirely unique to America, America, but it's certainly part of the American experiment and, and experience. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's interesting to think that we're only a few generations away from, you know, like my grandparents coming to this country, right? Yeah, um, or 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 yours for that matter, um, and then how rapidly things can things can change. And I and I don't even I don't always think they change for the better. No, you know? they they certainly don't change for the better. I think the Sopranos would argue. I mean, I think the Sopranos is kind of and David Chase is kind of bemused and uses the show as this, uh, you know, as this platform for all of the contradictions, uh, you know, the contradictions and ironies. Um, I mean, I think that's what the show is getting at culturally. I think that the overall thesis of the show is that maybe Americans, people, what have you, just don't don't really change, and that change is is extremely hard and it's going against going against the current in the our our capitalist consumerist society is you know it's very it's very if you try to go against the current you're going to you're going to end up alone and out to sea right right <laughs> but it's it's very uh, it's very very difficult and we see so many characters on the show uh try you know try to go their own way try to go against the current and just comically brutally tragically fail time and time again right right now are you both of your parents are still around well as, as of two days ago okay yeah i haven't talked to them today <laughs> <laughs> but i guess um, you know I'm, I'm just curious as to like now that you've got this like physical book and, and i know you've done many other things um over the years that that can prove to them that Hey, you can make a, a living doing, you know, something that's more creative, but now you've got this like physical, tangible thing that can be shipped to their home, sent to their friends, sold in bookstores. You know, do you ever, are you tempted to say, Hey, look, I, I, I did do it. I, I could do this. There's, there's two, well, there's two books this year with the video palace book. And I want to be clear that like the video palace book, I was, I created that this horror franchise with the aforementioned Mike Manello. Um, and I, I commissioned the stories and edited and rewrote some stuff, but I didn't write that whole book. And the Sopranos book I've put together as a party. I wrote about 60% of it, maybe, maybe less, maybe 50%. Um, but I, because I, I did understand as you, as you mentioned before, how lucky I was to fall into this opportunity. Um, I, I wanted to bring a, a lot of, I wanted to, to basically the idea for the book was that it's a party where I invite all the people that I know and love who I think would be the most interesting people um, with diverse points of view and perspectives at a Sopranos party. Um, so the book is largely and parts of it are, are, are mostly my voice, but there's all these other voices sprinkled throughout it, writing on an assortment of topics that I'm not qualified to write on, like psychiatry, like food, like uh, 
um, like fashion, like my mentor and professor, you know, Steve Weinberg from Holy Cross, who really in a lot of ways was the godfather of this book, wrote a, a wonderful book on method acting, and he writes an essay on method acting in The Sopranos. So it's not entirely my initiative. But to answer, to go back to your question, uh, yeah, it's something I, I've thought about it, but it's like my feeling is like there's part of me that would love to be like, I could have done this the whole time. I had it in me. Instead, I took advertising jobs for giant corporations and got paid okay. But like, why didn't, you know, why didn't you let me be the person I wanted to be? But at the same time, I like to think at 44, almost 45 years old, that um, I'm mature enough to know that that's not going to do any good except, except hurting them. Like they were just trying to protect me and did the best that they can. And in one way or another, I've gotten there. You know, I've produced, you know, I have a horror fiction franchise. I've got this book. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful that I've, that my serp, my serpentine path has, uh, has had uh, a lot of stops that I never would have dreamt of or not known how to create for myself. And, you know, I, I believe that um, <clears throat> stuff happens for, for three reasons combined. I actually hate the phrase, everything happens for a reason, but I think if, a comment, if, if you show up enough and Woody Allen has that great line that like 90% of life is just showing up. Um, if you, if you do like work hard and uh, that two other things enough times will touch you. And those things are timing and luck. <laughs> and I've been very, and you know, not, not everything's been a, a home run, but I've been, the t- I've had enough timing uh, and you have some agency in the notion of timing when you, when you choose to do things like that part of that's just showing up. Um, so the work, there's the, the hard work and maybe some innate talent, but certainly a talent and craft that I've worked on. And, uh, and then you get, and you get lucky and you call your shots that at least a few good things will probably happen that you want, that you wanted to happen. So I, I don't really feel any value in, um, I've had the itch and I've thought about it, but I just, I don't think I'm going to go back and be like, I could have been doing this at 22 because I couldn't have been, I was so stupid. I couldn't have been doing any, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, you know, for how dumb I was at 22, I'm lucky I'm alive. Um, so I, I, I have the, I have the feeling, but I'm more just like looking forward. Like what can I create from here? What's next? Who do I want to be going forward? There's not um, when I think, Oh, how, when I'm unhappy about, areas where I've landed. I more think of myself rather as the, the victim of other people um, as a Jacob Marley character. I'm like these, if I'm, if I'm rattling these chains because I, I failed to make purposeful choices and have ended up in something, then, then that's on me. And I can either figure out how to, un, how to undo that. Um, and the thing I, and I, the thing I try to do when I'm mentoring people is I'll use that Jacob Marley metaphor and be like, you don't, you don't want to be that like think and make purposeful choices. So at least you'll understand how you got where you are because there's nothing worse. And I've done it a lot. There's nothing worse than being like, how did I get here? This is awful. And not under and not and really having to think about the choices that you didn't make or that, you know, that you things that you let happen. Um, but that's a, the Jacob Marley metaphor is a free is a frequent and recurrent one in my, uh, my life. Yeah, it's certainly an appropriate time of year to be to be thinking yeah. about. And oh, there. Well, I actually, it's funny. I don't mention Marley, but a, there is um, a Christmas Carol. Is I, I believe, and I don't think anyone has ever noticed uh, has articulated this prior to my book. One of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos uses a, a Christmas Carol uh, structure and illusions, which is uh, the episode. Am I allowed to talk about spoilers or no? Sure, go right ahead. Oh, the, uh, there's an, uh, the episode in season five whoever did this, uh, which is Joe Pantaleano, Connecticut, Fairfield County resident, Joe, Joey Pants, uh, his, the Ralphie Cifaretto character he played, uh, who was a real son of a bitch, um, dies. But he, he is given this chance, at, uh, sort of a chance at redemption um, and has these, has, is visited by, by three people, but he's not, he's such a shithead that he's not, he's not actually afforded the, um, the reconciliation. Joey Pants. Um, if j- j- as we wrap up here, um, you know, I, I 
I want to go back to to kind of where we started, which is kind of, you know, you getting that real support, encouragement and acknowledgement um, for the first time. And, you know, as as writers, you need, you know, we, we have a hunger, I, I believe, you know, m- many of us have a hunger for um, validation, you know, to know that the stuff that we produced is being appreciated or liked by somebody. Yep. Um, but, you know, when if you could go, if you could have, you know, Mrs. Vote sitting here right now, um, what, what would you want to tell her? What would you, what would you express to her? It's funny because I actually months and months ago, because I, I mean, I probably haven't seen her since I was like in sixth grade or something was the last time that I went back. But I found her daughter on Facebook and I wrote to her daughter and said, I'm an old student of your mother's. And she she's thanked in the book, along with some other great teachers that I had um, in the acknowledgement section. But I, I wrote to her daughter and was like, I'd love to get a copy of this book to your mom. But she didn't I didn't hear back from her. Um, but I did. That was something that I that I wanted to do. I just would let her know what a gr- what like how much of a difference she made and what a great teacher she was. And some of it, I'm sure, was timing and chemistry, and some of it was probably just who she was and how she showed up for her job every day. I don't know what she saw in me. I don't know if she'll if she'll even remember me. But uh, whatever she, whatever she did was right. And Steve, you know, who I still talk to all the time, he's still he's been at Holy Cross for 34 years, maybe 35 now. Um is a, is a dear friend. And it's through his, it's through his classes at Holy Cross, you know, American film, film is narrative and the friendships that I founded there that, um, you know, there's three other of Steve's students appear in the book, uh, Andy Cambria, uh, Mark Delello and, and Dr. Dr. John Hastings. And, uh, that was, you know, really how I formed my sensibility. But all of those guys that I mentioned were better. Were I was a good critical writer, and sh- and I, I wrote strong stuff. But they were all they were all better than I was. And part of writing this, and Steve's, ama- I mean, Steve's writing is incredible. He was he himself had was mentored by by the 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 famous New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael, um, who was a friend of his until until her death in two thousand one. And I I wanted to prove to myself in my, in my critical analysis, in addition to my kind of project management and editorial skills in shaping and creative direction skills in shaping this book that I could, um, that I could really play on the field with these guys. And, uh, that, that was something I, I wanted to, you know, pr- that I wanted to prove to myself. Um, cause I've questioned, I've questioned it all, all these years. It's like, how good could I really be? Um, so like having going through the editing process, having Steve tell me Bravo, how proud he was of the final product and to be a part of it um, and how good he thought my stuff was, uh, you know, meant as much to me today as, you know, getting an A on my paper on the long goodbye as a, as a senior in 1998 meant to me huge. I mean, I'm getting actually a little emotional just thinking about it, but it was, that's, that's, that's why I did it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Like I, I, look back on teachers that I've had, whether it's college, high school, even younger grammar school. And gosh, you know, you, you really get the sense that hey, these people really aren't paid enough for the value. Oh, like, it's like being a priest in my estimation. I mean, you know, like tenured college professors, I think do, do okay. But like, I would love to be a high school teacher, but it's like, I mean, it's a, in our economy. It's essentially, if you don't come from money or have, you know, multiple incomes in a house, it's essentially like being a priest. Yeah. Gosh, it's, um, which but, is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous, amazing choice to make. I just don't know that I've got the courage to make it. Yeah. Well, the no sex thing is kind of a, a, a uh, Oh, I meant the, <laughs> uh, the teacher thing. <laughs> I, I knew exactly what you meant, but I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't not say it. Um, well, Nick, this has been great. Thank you very much for, uh, for, for spending some time talking with me about this, uh, about this new book. I'm very excited about by it. Um, now the holidays are coming up. I imagine it would make a great gift for. Yeah, uh, it's called uh, "Off the Back of a Truck," unofficial contraband for the Sopranos fan by uh, Nick Braccia and some friends of ours. <laughs> uh, so, uh, where uh, where can one find more information about this book? Should they want to? Um, if you just go to uh, bit dot bit dot ly. Uh, slash, I can't remember if it's a backslash or a forward slash, but if you're listening, you probably know Sopranos book. And it's a nice little uh, short link that, that Simon and Schuster set up, but just Googling it a little, you know, easy to find, but 
if you I think if you like the show that the book will feel like uh, like a party. It's not an episode guide. Um, it's really meant to enhance uh, enhance appreciation and uh, you know just let you get your uh, your salsa leech on. That's right. So the holidays are coming, people, and uh, I'm sure this makes a great gift for uh, the Sopranos fan in your life. Yeah, and if uh, if you I, if um, you let Mike know that you bought a copy, I will uh, get a, a box of ZD shipped to your house, uncooked, but uncooked. A, a box of ZD. Yeah, guaranteed. That's that's fair. That's fair. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Always always great to catch up with you. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Nick Braccia, or Nick Braccia, if you're my twin brother, Jimmy, because that's how he always pronounced Nick's last name. I hope you enjoyed it, and as a reminder, his book, Off the Back of a Truck, Unofficial Contraband for the Sopranos Fan, is available wherever books are sold. And believe me, it makes a great gift for any Sopranos fan in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, check out more at uncorkingastory.com or through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe so you can stay up to date with every new episode and maybe even listen to some of those old ones. There's some great ones in there. And lastly, if you want to learn more about me and my books, please be sure to visit MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And at that website, you can, of course, buy any of my books for the reader in your life. Christmas is coming, people. So it's Hanukkah. Uh, So uh, I'll end by saying for all of us here at Uncorking the Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening. (laughs) 